Previously, in verse 4 of his epistle, Jude leveled four charges against the false teachers who had infiltrated the church. One of those charges was that they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Peter used a similar charge in 2 Peter 2.3. Their judgment from long ago and their destruction is not asleep. Both Jude and Peter were making the case that the condemnation or judgments against false teachers had not only been at work, but it had been previously published in writing, specifically Deuteronomy 13.5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Thus God stated that false teachers will be judged and suffer eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Because false teachers turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, God will, without a doubt, judge them. God's judgment of false teachers is certain because God routinely judged the wicked throughout history. In 2 Peter 2, 4-9, Peter presented three examples of God's judgment in the past. The angels of Genesis 6, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. As a follow-up, in verses 5 through 7 of Jude, Jude provides examples, three examples, of God's judgment in the past to demonstrate the certainty of judgment in the future. We could entitle this section of Jude as part two of Peter's previous discussion on the certainty of judgment on false teachers. The certainty of judgment on false teachers, part two. Jude, verses 5 to 7. Jude provides three examples of judgment, making this his third triad. He returns to Peter's example of the Genesis 6 angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, he adds a new example, Israel in the wilderness. Jude's three examples are illustrations used often in Jewish literature. For example, in the book of Sirach, it deals with the judgment of the Genesis 6 angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Israel in the wilderness. In Sanhedrin 10.3, it mentions the judgment of the Genesis 6 angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel in the wilderness. As well, 3rd Maccabees, Testament of Naphtali, Jubilees, and the Damascus document, part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all mention the judgment on the Genesis 6 angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. What's interesting is that in each of these Jewish writings, the writers use these examples to emphasize the certainty of God's judgment in the future. Now, Jude's first history lesson to demonstrate the certainty of judgment comes from Numbers 14 and deals with God's judgment on the Israelites in the wilderness. Jude verse 5, God's judgment on the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, I desire to remind you Though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Again, this first history lesson comes from Numbers 14. Notice here that Jude says, and he begins with, I desire to remind you. The verb desire, bulamai, is not an emotion, but an intention or purpose that comes from reason. The verb to remind, hupomanesco, means to cause someone to think about something again. Hence, what we see here is Jude's purpose in writing is to remind his readers of something. 
That he wants to remind them of something implies that he has previously instructed them about this topic. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, Peter said that he was writing to remind you of these things. Again, same word remind, hupomenesco. Peter referred to these things as the doctrines of Scripture taught by him and the other apostles in their epistles. Now, Jude qualifies his statement with the phrase, though you know all things once for all. Now, Jude used the phrase once for all, hapax, back in verse 3, to specify that the faith, that is, biblical doctrine, had been taught to them and that it was settled. So Jude's purpose in writing was not to remind them about the faith, as they were already grounded in biblical orthodoxy. Instead, he is writing to charge them to contend earnestly for the faith. Believers are to fight. We are to fight for the faith with intense effort, regardless of the cost. That's what Jude's purpose in writing has been about. And so, whereas Peter wrote to remind his readers, or remind us, about biblical doctrine, Jude sets out to remind his readers and us of the certainty of judgment on the false teachers. And so he begins with his first biblical history lesson. He states, The Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, before exploring the judgment specifics, note that Jude states that the Lord meted out these three judgments. However, here's what's interesting. The Greek text does not use the term kurios, meaning Lord. Instead, the Greek text uses the proper name Iesus, or Jesus. And there is overwhelming textual evidence to support the use of Jesus instead of Lord. Now, of course, in verse 4, Jude has already made the case that Jesus is Lord or Yahweh. However, we should not miss the fact that by stating that Jesus judged the Israelites in the wilderness, the angels of Genesis 6, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude is further establishing... Jesus' deity, his eternality, and his pre-incarnate existence. Now, Jude is not alone in identifying Jesus Christ as the member of the Godhead who interacted with Israel in the Old Testament era. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul states that the Israelites, during their wilderness wanderings, quote, all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Then, in 1 Corinthians 10.9, Paul warned believers not to try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Now, in that case, Paul is referencing the events of Numbers 25. But notice he specifically used the title Lord, Curios, the New Testament's means of identifying Yahweh. Now, take this a step further. Paul repeatedly applies this title, Lord, to none other than Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, and verses 7 to 10. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, 
to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, so that you are not lacking in any gifts, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And therefore, Paul is declaring that Jesus Christ was Yahweh, and that Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, was the member of the Godhead interacting with Israel. And that the second person of the Godhead was actively at work in the Old Testament destroys modalism's false doctrine. Modalism teaches that instead of three distinct Godhead members, God merely manifested himself as a father in the Old Testament, and then a son in the New Testament, and as a spirit presently. So modalism does not teach three distinct persons of the Godhead. Modalism teaches there's only one person who manifests himself in three different forms. And modalism is the popular doctrine found in Pentecostal and many charismatic churches. We need to beware of the doctrine of modalism. In Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, Yahweh declares, quote, To me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul took that statement and applied it to Christ in Philippians 2, 10-11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Additionally, in John twelve forty one, the beloved apostle applied Isaiah 6 to Jesus Christ. Quote, these things I say is said because he saw Christ's glory and he spoke of him. Now, returning to the specifics of the first judgment, Jude states, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. See, Christ delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt after a series of plagues culminating in the firstborn's death. And no sooner were the Israelites saved than they began to rebel against God. And Jude's reference to their destruction, to Israel's destruction, is found in Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers 14, the people arrived at Kadesh Barnea, a town on the border of the Promised Land. According to Numbers 14.11, the Hebrews exhibited unbelief in Yahweh. Quote, How long will they believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Now, the verb not believe in the Septuagint translation of Numbers 14.11 is the same as in Jude verse 5, Pistua. See, God delivered them out of Egypt, and they went astray in their hearts and did not know his ways. And following the report of the ten, or ten of the twelve spies, the people rebelled and begged to return to Egypt and sought a new leader. Numbers 14, verse 2 and 4. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And as a result, in Numbers 14, 12, 
God promised to dispossess or destroy them. Quote, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. Now the verb dispossess in the Septuagint translation of Numbers 14.12 is the same as the verb destroyed in Jude verse 5. Apolumai. And the verb apolumai has a dual meaning. On one hand, it can mean to utterly destroy or ruin something so that it can no longer fulfill the purpose for which it was designed. And on the other hand, it means to kill or do away with someone or something. Now, it needs to be underscored that God's wrath against Israel in Numbers 14 was not the result of a single act of unbelief. This sin of unbelief reared its ugly head on ten different occasions. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20 to 23. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Now it's only been two years since they left Egypt and in two years they have not believed God ten times times. And often their sin of unbelief was demonstrated through their grumbling, complaining, and rebelling. Exodus chapter 15 verse 23 to 24, when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah for they were bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Exodus 16 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 17, 3, and the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. Numbers 14, 26 to 30, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? And I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephthah and Joshua the son of Nun. Number 16.41 On the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And Deuteronomy 1.26-27 You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and grumbled in your tents. And so as a result of their rebellion, which is the culmination of their unbelief, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 38 more years. The generation who fled Egypt suffered physical death as divine punishment and never entered into their Canaan rest. The Lord declared in Numbers 14.29 that everyone over 20 years old and upward who grumbled against me would die in the wilderness. Now, according to Numbers chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, quote, from 20 years old and upward, all the numbered men were 603,550. Adding in an equal amount of women brings the total to 1,207,100. Now, if we divide the total number of people by the total number of days over the next 38 years, it meant that approximately 90 people per day died in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 
Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. Now, it should be stated that God's judgment resulted in physical death here, not spiritual death. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. See, their unbelief did not cost them their salvation, but it did result in a physical punishment, death. See, though repentance results in forgiveness, it does not always remove the physical judgment associated with the sin. Consider the example of Moses. He hit the rock when he was commanded to speak to it. As a result, Moses died never reaching the promised land. However, Moses did not lose salvation, as demonstrated from his appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Jude uses Israel's judgment in the wilderness here to warn us that we are facing the same danger. If we do not earnestly contend for the faith, we're going to be deceived by false teachers and therefore be tempted to not believe or to exhibit unbelief in God and His promises. And here's a sure sign that you are dabbling with unbelief. And that is grumbling and complaining. We must understand that this type of unbelief is dangerous. When we don't believe God and His promises, and in turn, grumble and complain, it's going to lead to disobedience. And eventually, it's going to form into rebellion. And when believers act in rebellion, they do so to their own destruction. And so, believer, check yourself. Check yourself. Check your attitude. Are you grumbling and complaining? Why? Is it, is it a lack of trust? Is it a lack of belief in God and His promises? And beware, if it is, repent of it, because the more you grumble and complain, it's going to lead to disobedience. And eventually, disobedience is going to exhibit itself in some type of rebellion. And that rebellion will not cost a genuine believer eternal life in heaven. But my friend, let me warn you, it will result in the loss of blessing in this life. And perhaps even death. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to 30 A man must examine himself, and in so doing he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you, now listen, are weak and sick and a number sleep. The word sleep there is a euphemism for dead. Many are dead. So if God will judge his people, how much more will he judge those false teachers who seek to deceive his people? Consider the next two examples of God's judgment against the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, 
but abandon their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Jude 6. Jude's second history lesson demonstrates the certainty of judgment from Genesis 6 and God's judgment on the angels. Now, angels were created between the second and third day of creation. Sometime after the seventh day, Lucifer rebelled and was cast out of the third of heaven. The third heaven, God's dwelling place. One third of the angels rebelled with him and were also cast out of the third heaven, Revelation 12.4. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, this sin of rebellion however, is not the specific sin to which Jude refers. He states here that these angels did not keep their own domain. Now the verb keep, tereo, is in the aorist tense, meaning they did not remain in the state in which they were presently in. The word domain refers to the sphere of one's authority or rule. Hence Jude stated that these angels failed to remain in their sphere of Authority. Now, the angelic sphere of authority is in heaven. Within heaven, angels fall into three categories. There are seraphim, cherubim, and archangels. And amongst these various angels, there's a hierarchy of authority. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and powers. Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. 1 Peter 3.22, who is the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. See, instead of remaining in heaven in their appointed sphere of authority, these angels abandoned their proper abode. Now the verb abandon here, apalepo, is to leave something behind with no intention of ever returning to it. Proper, idios, refers to something unique. And the term abode, oiketerion, refers to a dwelling place. So not only did these angels fail to remain in their sphere of authority, but they left behind their heavenly home with no intent on ever returning. And John MacArthur makes an interesting statement here. He says the phrase abandon their proper abode refers to having illicit sexual relationships. Now the parallel between Jude's statements about these angels not remaining in their sphere of authority, but abandoning their heavenly home, is no doubt an allusion to 1 Enoch 12.4. The angels of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. Now, as previously stated, Jude implores the use of various Jewish pseudographical writings in his epistle. And understanding the background of Jude's statements provides us with why these angels did not keep their own domain and abandon their proper abode. Accordingly, they did so to defile themselves by taking human women as wives. That is, these angels engaged in illicit sexual relationships. Now, Peter stated in 1 Peter 3.20 that these angels were, quote, disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, by placing this angelic disobedience within the context of Noah's timeline establishes that the specific sin of Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2 refers back to Genesis chapter 6, 
verses 1 and 2 and 4. The sons of God, the Benai Hai Elohim, saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days also. Afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now the sons of God, the Benai Ha-Elohim, in the Old Testament refers to angels. Also the Septuagint translates sons of God in Genesis 6 as angelos, or angels. Now the term took, lekha, in Genesis 6-2 means to enter into a marriage relationship. And the result of this insidious union between these fallen angels and human women were the Nephilim, or fallen ones. And while not all fallen angels took human women as wives, there is no doubt that Satan orchestrated this. See, Satan, knowing the promise that the seed's son would crush his head, wanted to corrupt the seed of the woman in hopes of preventing the Messiah's coming. Now, 2 Peter 2.4 states that God did not spare angels when they sinned. The verb spare, phatomai, implies forgiveness and mercy. The word sinned, harmateno, means to violate divine law. And so by cohabitating with, the, with human women, these angels violated God's law. And as such, God had no mercy and offered no forgiveness to these angels. Instead of mercy and forgiveness, God rendered an immediate judgment against these angels. Peter stated in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter that God has, quote, cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude states that these angels are being kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now the term hell in 2 Peter 2.4 translates Tartarus and refers to a prison house in hell created explicitly for these angels. The word Tartarus or Tartarao originated in Greek mythology as a place lower than Hades set aside for the most wicked where the demigods were punished. The Jews co-opted this term to describe the prison house where fallen angels were confined. According to 1 Enoch 22, or 20 verse 2, 21, 6, and 10, Uriel, one of the holy angels, who is over the world and over Tartarus, these are the number of the stars of heaven, or the angels, which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and are bound here till 10,000 years, the time entailed by their sins are consummated. And Uriel said unto me, that's Enoch, this place, Tartarus, is the prison of the angels, and here they will be imprisoned forever. Now, Back in 2 Peter 2.4, the phrase pits of darkness, the term pits, Sarah, would be better rendered as chains or cords of darkness. Now, if we render the term Sarah as chains, it fits Jude's parallel statement. They're kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Now, the term desmos, translated as bonds here in Jude 6, is a synonym for the term Sarah, translated as pits in Peter's writing. And the term darkness denotes the condition of despair or gloom. So the point is that they're bound in these chains, and the, these chains cause them to despair. Jude and Peter make the point here that these angels are confined in Tartarus and restrained in chains of darkness because they've been reserved for judgment. 
And here the verbs reserved in 2 Peter 2.4 and kept in Jude 6 translates that Greek verb tereo. And we, as we've seen before in its present and perfect tense, tereo means to guard or keep imprisoned. So they did not tereo, they did not maintain their proper place of authority. So therefore God tereoed, he keeps them imprisoned in Tartarus until a time of future judgment. And that future judgment is, as Jude says, the judgment of the great day, the great white throne judgment, when these angels will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And so in his second biblical history lesson, Jude's point is that those who transgress God's divine law will experience judgment. And to those who would question the scriptural inerrancy of the Genesis 6 narrative, I'd like to leave you with three proofs for its accuracy and truthfulness. First, several Jewish historical narratives record the same event. First Enoch, Jubilees, and the Antiquities of the Jews. Second, both Peter and Jude, under the Holy Spirit superintending, quote First Enoch, thus validating it as a divinely approved historical record. Not inspired, but divinely improved. Third, many cultures have a record of a sexual union between angels or demigods and humans. For example, Greek mythology records the Titans cohabiting with women of the earth until the god Zeus intervenes and condemns them to Tartarus. And Peter's usage of Tartarus in describing the angels' imprisonment validates the truth behind the myth. And so we've got two judgments so far. The judgment on Israel in the wilderness and the judgment on the fallen angels in Genesis 6. Jude's third history lesson to demonstrate the certainty of judgment comes from Genesis 19 and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as examples in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Again, Jude's third history lesson to demonstrate the certainty of judgment comes from Genesis 19 and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, while Peter only mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude included the cities around them. Now, the other three cities around them were Adma, Zeboim, and Zor. Now, Zor, however, was spared at Lot's request. Genesis 19, 19-22. Now, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small, that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Azor. So before the destruction of the other four cities, now the plains of Jordan, according to Genesis 13.10, were well watered everywhere, like the gardens of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Afterwards, 
the valley was permanently ruined. Now Jude's use of Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment as an example of God's wrath against disobedience was not out of place amongst Jewish believers. Moses referenced this judgment to warn the Israelites before entering the land of promise. Deuteronomy 29.23 All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive. And no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah mention Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment in their warnings against Israel's disobedience. Isaiah 3.9 They display their sin like Sodom. They do not not conceal it. Woe to them, for they've brought evil to themselves. Jeremiah 23.14 Among the prophets of Jerusalem have seen a horrible thing. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16.49 Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Amos 4.11, I overthrow you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And Zephaniah 2.9, Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. Christ also compared the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah to the judgment awaiting unbelievers. Matthew 10.5, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now as we come to, back to Jude verse 7, he says, just as, at the beginning of that verse. And the phrase, just as, is a comparative term meaning like. As well, he goes on to say, to use the phrase, in the same way. And that phrase, just as, hos, and in the same way, tan hamoyan trapan, also a comparative term, term, indicates similarity or resemblance. See, Jude's point here is that there's a parallel between the immorality of these angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, the angels engaged in interspecies sexual relationships, i.e. angels and women. And as we're going to see here, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah engaged in homoerotic or same-sex relations. Now, significantly, Jude stated that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That verbal phrase, indulged in gross immorality, ek pornuo, refers to sexual acts forbidden by God. Now, the Greek verb here, ek pornuo, comes from two Greek terms, ek, meaning out and out, and pornuo, meaning fornication. Hence, the force of gross immorality is literally out-and-out out fornication. And the scripture defines fornication as the highest form of sexual sin or abuse that can be committed. And it classifies the following sins under the label fornication. Here's what the Bible says fornication is. Incest, adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, bestiality, and prostitution. The particular gross immorality to which Jude refers can be defined by the phrase when after strange flesh. So of those various sins under the heading of fornication, incest, adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, 
In particular, Jude's referring to one of them by the phrase, strange flesh. Now, it says they went after strange flesh. That verb, went, aperkomai, means to depart from something. And the preposition after, apsio, opsis, yeah, opposo, means to go in search of something. In other words, these people departed from normal sexual relations and went in search of something different. And something different is defined by the phrase strange flesh, heteros sarx. Now in Greek, when there's a dual duality case, now this is a duality case because it involves a man and a woman, a male and a female, the word strange or other heteros denotes a difference of kind. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah's people were pursuing sexual relations with the same sex. And it's borne out in Genesis 19.5 when the men of Sodom demanded that Lot send the angels who they supposed were men out of his house to have sexual relations with them. They called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And this sin of sexual immorality was so great that Yahweh said to Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Genesis 18.20 that, that word, exceedingly grave, ma'ad kebid, depicts their sexual immorality as abundantly grievous and burdensome. In fact, God calls it an abomination. Leviticus 18.22 you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Therefore, because of their gross immorality, Peter stated in 2 Peter 2.6 that God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ash. And destruction, catastrophe, describes an event that completely ruins or overthrows something. And according to Genesis 19.24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire, thus reducing them to ashes, which confirms such destruction. The cities were burnt altogether, leaving only ash behind. And that ash was a reminder of the fiery judgment that befell the ungodly of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter states the ash remains serve as an example, a degma, to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Jude stated that Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example, a degma, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That both Peter and Jude use the term example, which refers to a model or pattern given as a warning, means that they are warning against false teachers. And their point is that God's fiery judgment against these cities is a warning of the type of fiery judgment that is awaiting the false teachers in the lake of fire. Friends, Jude issues a dire warning against false teachers. And God's judgment is certain. As assuredly as God judged Israel in the wilderness, the angels of Genesis 6 and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah make no doubt He will judge false teachers. Now, Israel had the privilege of being delivered from Egypt. The angels had the privilege of heaven. Sodom and Gomorrah had the privilege of wealth and opulence. And for all their privilege, 
listen carefully, they did not escape God's wrath. And whatever, false, or whatever privilege false teachers now enjoy will mean nothing because a disaster is looming on the horizon. Upon their death, all false teachers will be imprisoned in hell. There they will await a future day of judgment at the great white throne. And from his throne, God will cast them all into the lake of fire. Now, believer, my friends, the privilege of salvation brings responsibilities to you and I as well. Namely, the responsibility of obedience. As demonstrated by Israel's disobedience, God will not pass over the sins of his people. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean he's going to pass over your sin. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul used the same example of Israel in the wilderness to warn believers, to warn you and me. He says the Israelites all partook of Christ, yet they failed to please God, and as a result, God disciplined them. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-5 I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And accordingly, in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11, Paul says, These things happened as examples, there's that word example, for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. We must heed, my friends, the example of Israel and learn the lessons they failed to learn. Now, some of you may think you're above sin. Some of you might even be thinking you're above reproach. You say, oh, I'd never fall into idolatry. I'd never fall into immorality. I'd never tempt God. Oh, I would never grumble. Listen up. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 to 10. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 to 10. So, my friends, a word of warning. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Listen, any one of us can fall into sin, into some form of unbelief. That doesn't mean we've uh, apostatized. It doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. But it means that we're not trusting in God and his promises. And as I said before, a sure sign... One of the first signs of unbelief in a believer's life is grumbling and complaining. It shows a lack of trust in God and His promises. And that grumbling and complaining, if we don't nip it, is going to turn into disobedience. And that disobedience will eventually ferment itself into out-and-out out rebellion against God. Heed the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3.17. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, false teachers, and fall from your own steadfastness. Listen, my friends, the false teachers are out there. They've invaded the church of God today. 
And they want nothing more than to lead you into unbelief. Believers, beware. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us, Father. We thank you for this, these three history lessons that Jude has given us. The Lord, the certainty of your judgment against false teachers is beyond doubt. But Father, also let us be wary of our own selves. For Lord, as surely as you will judge them, you will judge us. In fact, as Peter said, judgment begins at the house of God. And so Father, let us judge ourselves. Lest we lose blessing. Lest we become sick and weak. Lest some of us sleep. As Paul said. And so Father, I pray to that end that you'd help us. To guard ourselves against these things. That Lord... Help us to earnestly contend, fight for the faith once delivered. Let us not rest. Let us not become weary in well-doing. For the Lord that you may uphold us and protect us and guard us until that great and glorious day of the rapture. That day when you call us into your presence. And so, Father, we commit these things and commit each one listening, each one of your children, Father, to your care, asking that you will strengthen them, uphold them, sustain them, empower them, and equip them that they may not be lost, that they may not become victim of false teaching or false teachers. Father, if there's anyone, Lord, who's struggling with grumbling and complaining or with some form of unbelief, some disobedience that they're tolerating in their life, Lord, I pray that you would use your spirit to come alongside them, Father, and help them to confess and forsake that sin and reclaim those promises that you've given them. Lord, I pray that in your son's precious name. Amen.